Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today I'm going to be answering a bunch of listeners' questions. And I want to encourage you guys to, if you have questions, please send them to me, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. I want to let you know this uh, podcast is title sponsor is GoHunt.com Insider. And I want to remind you that they just launched Oregon. Uh, they're going to have all of the draw odds uh, for Oregon uh, for this May application deadline. Uh, also, uh, GoHunt.com is currently working on year-over-year draw odds and statistics. So you'll be able to compare from prior years uh, and, and see where the trends are going. And also let you know that they're going to have the guided uh, draw uh, portion for New Mexico and Nevada uh, and the odds for Arizona. If you remember, they did not have the Arizona draw odds because Arizona changed their uh, uh, non-resident quotas from 10% of the tags go to the non-residents to, uh, with the most bonus points, to 5% go to the people with the most, or the non-residents with the most bonus points, and then 5% completely random. Well, for this uh, February uh, draw for elk and antelope, they are going to have all the actual statistics. So I want to encourage you guys to uh, sign up for GoHunt.com. And if you do that, go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott. And it will take you to a page where you can join the insider and get a $50 Kuyu gift card by using the J. Scott promo code. Uh, Just go on... uh, uh, GoHunt.com forward slash insider. Click on the blue join now button and use the J. Scott uh, promo code and that will get you a $50 Kuyu gift card. I can't tell you how many people that have emailed me uh, saying how much uh, they love the GoHunt.com insider resource. So go check it out. Guys, let's get right to this episode. Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we're going to go through, I've got a bunch of questions uh, from listeners uh, from a wide range of topics and I want to thank you guys for all your support that you give me here at this podcast and encourage you guys, if you have any questions, you can send them to jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also go on Instagram or Facebook and send me direct messages through there. I try and answer these questions uh, individually. Uh, sometimes they come in in waves and I'm either on a hunt or uh, busy with um, my other job or what have you and uh, can't get to them right away. But most of them I try and answer the same day. Um, but I figure these are good questions that I would go ahead and answer on the podcast because I'm sure if one person has the questions, uh, other people have have the same questions. So uh, let's dive right into it here. Okay, this question is from Michael B. J. Quick question for you: What coolers, ice chests, do you guys run when you're on hunting trips or guiding? I'm in the market for a new one, and I keep flip flopping between several brands. Just wanted to hear your opinion. Thanks. Keep up the great work. I love the podcast. Uh, Michael, uh, the best that Dara and I use, obviously, are the Yeti coolers. Uh, I believe I have three hard Yeti coolers or two hard Yeti coolers. And then I have that soft, I'm not even sure what they call it, but it's um, uh, 
kind of a duffel bag type um, that I use in my raft actually in the summer. Um, the downside to the Yeti coolers is they're heavy, um, heavier than just a normal cooler that you'd buy at Walmart. Um, but the nice thing is they keep ice and keep things cold way longer. I'm going to say like seven full days, um, even in even in hot temperatures. Um, I, I did notice that if you can cool the core of the uh, Yeti down before you are putting stuff in it, it, it also prolongs that. And then we also have, <clears throat> Dara and I, for our uh, guided trips, uh, we have just big um, industrial size uh, coolers that you could buy at Walmart or at Cabela's. I don't even know the brands, but, you know, the big one, almost like we're a 10-year-old kid could lay in them lengthwise. I mean, they're probably, you know, five feet long. Um, and they don't keep ice near as well. But sometimes when you just have to pack a lot of stuff, um, you know, you can you can pack dry ice on the bottom. And, uh, you know, they work relatively well. And, and some of these colder hunts where it's not as imperative, um, you know, you can get by with a, with a cheaper cooler. Hope that answers your questions. Thanks for, thanks for your support of the podcast. Okay, another question from Mark R. Jay, love your podcast. Starting to do more pack-in hunts for coups. What do you consider a good overall weight for coups rifle for a pack-in hunt offering a balance between stable long-range shooting and keeping weight reasonable? Thanks so much, Mark. Uh, Mark, like I answered here in your email, I would say from that six and a half to nine pounds, um, that's always the, the dilemma of if you have too light, light of a rifle, um, I think you lose some accuracy when your rifle is too light. Um, so I'm going to say, you know, probably in that seven and a half to nine pound range. Um, and I like a heavier rifle. Um, just because I think you can set them on a pack and, and they just shoot better. Um, I, I would encourage you guys to watch out carrying too lightweight of a rifle. Uh, I've guided hunters in the past that have had super lightweight rifles and the accuracy in actual field conditions when you're, you know, any slight little movement on the pack when you're trying to shoot can uh, mean the difference between, you know, hitting dead on and not hitting where you want so uh, hope that answers your question we could do a whole podcast and maybe i'll get someone on here that's um can really dig into the details of exact weights of of rifles but i'm glad you're getting into coos deer hunting uh backpack hunting uh i was fortunate uh, this last weekend to join dar and his son uh his his youngest son uh on his second coos deer hunt and um Part of the fun for me is just getting back in some of that country where people turn around, you know, they, they, they may get there to your camp, so to speak, on a day hunt, but they got to get out of that country in order to be back down to their truck or back down to their, their, their um, you know, stationary camp by, uh, you know, say an hour after the sun goes down. Um, so I like to get in there where maybe someone's going to maybe reach you you know, walking for four or five hours in the morning. Um, but by the time they get there, it's pretty warm. The deer probably aren't moving and they're not much of a threat anyway. It seems like if you can get about a mile away from the closest road, 
um, the number of bucks that you see goes up dramatically. So uh, Paul was able to harvest uh, the first morning. Um, I actually, my, my niece had a volleyball game. She plays uh, college volleyball in California and it's her senior year and I hadn't gotten to see her play yet this fall. And um, her school was actually playing here in town in, in Phoenix. So uh, that was Thursday night before the opener. So my plan was to get up early Friday morning after I went to the volleyball game and to uh, walk into camp and get in there uh, as close to light coming up as I could and um, do some glassing and and uh, Dar and Paul had spent the night in there before and we were planning to spend two or three nights in there and and uh, Dar and I had packed in water um, a, a few days before I believe we took a hundred pounds of water in there and um, uh, by the time I got in there Dar had spotted five bucks and one of them or the five bucks were together they were only 400 yards uh, from the deer they only had to move about 100 yards and Paul was able to harvest his second coos deer real nice wide buck um, kind of short g2 on one side but um, a nice nice deer uh, obviously last year he shot that giant 121 inch just freak deer for his first year so but he was tickled pink uh, with his buck and um, had a great time as always hunting with Dar. He's been a great uh, hunting partner uh, over the years and it's great to see him hunting with his boys. Him and Parker had shot a, uh, Parker got his uh, first archery elk uh, in, in a kind of a mediocre unit uh, in Arizona and we did a podcast about that and it scored just under 370 inches and um, so Parker's quite the archer. It's great to see Dar getting out with his boys. That's kind of a long-winded answer, but uh, I'll try and get someone on the podcast where we can talk more specifics um, about rifles and and ultralight uh, backpack hunting and which rifles are best and such. There's a question from Scott S. Hi, Jay. I was just listening to your podcast with Cody from The Outdoorsman's. I'm getting ready to get the Swirl 95mm and was wondering why you prefer the straight version. I'm a pretty tall guy at 6 foot 5 and was all set on the angled until I heard you say you use a straight. Just curious as a taller guy, uh, what makes you go with the straight version? Um, thanks for the great podcast. I never miss an episode. I'm up here in Las Vegas. Uh, just got back from a unit 32 coos hunt and decided it's time to get a better spotter. Um, Scott, uh, I've got some great memories down in unit 32 for coos deer. Um, back in the day, Dar and I really liked to hunt uh, unit 32. You had the Galeros and the Winchesters and um, that's just a real classic um, area for coos deer in, in southern Arizona. It's kind of southeast Arizona. It's kind of uh, over there. Um, it would be east of San Manuel. Um, some incredible places over there like Redfield Canyon and Sabrell Butte and, and um, the Rug Hill Road and Parsons Grove and um, all that stuff over there by Rattlesnake Canyon and Deer Creek and and um, China Peak and um, just classic coos deer country. Uh, going back to your question, I'm actually devoting a whole uh, podcast episode with Cody Nelson on the straight and angled. It's gonna it's gonna uh, air here uh, really quickly. 
Um, we have a real nice discussion on this. But in short, um, two reasons. Um, for me, the target acquisition with a straight uh, spotting scope is much, much faster uh, than with an angled. Uh, and number two, when I'm sitting down and glassing with my binoculars and I spot something that I want to put my spotting scope on, um, I pop the binos off. I use the outdoorsman's adapter. I pop it, slide it off, and then slide the spotting scope in and immediately look. And I have my binos and my spotting scope set up so that they're looking at the same spot. And I do that ahead of time, and it's always good to check that. Um, but it, I've gotten where on a straight spotting scope, that's what I've always used. Uh, my target acquisition is much, much faster. And if I'm sitting down, I don't have to raise or lower the center post or raise or lower the legs of my tripod. Whereas if you had an angled spotting scope, if you picture the binos on a tripod and now all of a sudden that angle is a much higher, it, it, you know, it tilts up. So you have to be a good two or three, maybe four inches higher. At that point, you either have to lower your um, uh, middle post on your tripod or you have to raise up in your seat, or you have to lower your legs. Um, and I know guys, I'll get some emails from guys saying they, they turn the angle to the side and kind of look, but um, it's never been for me. I've always been a straight uh, spotting scope, and you're going to really enjoy my conversation with Cody Nelson uh, where we go into it. I'm also a fairly tall guy. I'm 6'3", and for me, I don't see where height plays in any role in that at all unless you're talking about standing looking through a tripod uh, or using a tripod looking through a spotting scope standing which I rarely rarely do and I would encourage you not to stand and look through a spotting scope uh, if you get as low as you possibly can build as strong a foundation or base with your tripod as you can and that's the other thing I always glass I never use the center post of my a tripod when I'm sitting. I always use the legs to get me to the elevation where I need to be. And so in other words, if I'm looking through an angled spotting scope, I can't lower the center post anymore because it's always bottomed out, if that makes sense, because I want it to be as stable as possible. So um, uh, you'll get more out of the episode that I'm going to do with Cody Nelson, and it should be airing quickly. Uh, Scott, thanks for your support of the podcast. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any products. This is from Joshua B. Uh, he sends an email. Hi, I'm new to hunting in Arizona, and I'm doing the late season elk archery hunt in Unit 22, November 11th. I was wondering if you had any scouting reports for that area at all for sale, or if you had any particular tips on finding a decent bull. I'm not shooting for trophy size. I scouted the area early September and saw some decent numbers, um, but I'm not familiar with elk movement in that area. I'm going to try 
a couple more times to scout before the hunt, but was looking for some additional info to my own scouting to help have better shot of success. Uh, Josh, one thing I would tell you is, in my opinion, these late season archery elk hunts are very difficult um, because these elk in the late season, they move out of some of those softer areas and meadows and more open areas to uh, some of the thick uh, north-facing uh, dark timber, um, manzanita, uh, you know, pine, uh, thick, thick timber to kind of recuperate from the rut. And, you know, one positive is typically if you're going to find bulls that time of year, they're going to be bachelored back up together like they are in the summer. Um, they're not calling as much uh, as, as, as a matter of fact, very little. Um, you know, I'd, I'd maybe try out that uh, real game calls um, uh, call if, if you were going to call it all. I wouldn't do any bugling, um, but maybe if you got in close and, 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 you know, there were four or five bulls, quite possibly could maybe do some calling and have them come over curious. Um, if it were me, though, I would probably be, I would probably, you know, stalk them and not make any noise and not let them know you're there. Uh, that hunt can be productive in, in my mind in two ways. If you have a good water source um, that you could set a tree stand on or a ground blind and maybe run some trail cameras and uh, hope that it's dry, uh, which it's been very, very dry. So that might be a great tactic for you coming up. Um, but it's kind of a real scouting inducive um hunt in that you really kind of need to know where those elk are and that leads me to my second point that if you do a ton of glassing and find those bulls once you find where they're at and if you can watch them and kind of pattern them and figure out what they're doing uh, they usually have a small little tight range that they that they run in that time of year so spend more time looking and glassing. I would focus on thick north-facing, you know, kind of the nasty parts of, of the unit. Um, not out in the open, not close to roads. Um, I'd search for those manzanita and kind of mahogany, um, you know, thick, thick hillsides. Once you kind of figure them out, I probably would try and like glass them in the morning watch them go into their cover and then make plays on them in the evening. Um, and it always helps if you could have a spotter. Uh, and it always helps if, if you're not opposed to it, if you could have communication with your spotter. Um, so specifically on spots, uh, I mean, as long as you go in those rougher areas, um, go where it's kind of hard to get to, I think you'll find elk. As long as you can glass, I think you'll find elk, you know, and look, you know, put the sun in your face in the afternoon and they'll be in those picture anywhere where there's shade and that's probably where those elk will be. Um, also, it can be deadly if you know where a spring or any type of water source um, and it's hot and dry, even a water hole, but I would specifically maybe more like a spring um, or just, uh, you know, small little pockets of water. Um, that have easy access or not easy because nothing's easy but quicker access to that thicker country um, they're going to move as little as they possibly can this time of year
Josh, thanks for your question. Hope that helps. Uh, David W. Hi, Jay. I'm a California hunter and huge fan of your podcast. I'm actually listening to episode 200 with Dwayne Adams right now. Man, what a great informative episode. Uh, I have some questions about hunting in southern Arizona and hope you can answer them. After about 20 years of hunting here in California, I decided to venture down to southern Arizona last January for the archery OTC deer hunt. I immediately fell in love with the place. I saw more deer in those five days than I've ever seen in my whole life in California. On top of that, I also got to finally see a coos doe in the hills one morning. Um, man, I'd love to get one of those bucks. What an awesome hunt it was. My questions stem from the problems I encountered on that hunt. Hunting the rut afforded me the chance to see a lot of bucks, but getting to them through the herd of does and seemingly billions of eyes and ears and noses was very challenging to say the least. I ended up eating my tag, but hopefully to score but I'm hoping to score this coming January. I was in units 36A, B, and C last year, and I plan to focus on 36C this year. Do you have any tips that would help me eat some Arizona venison instead of a non-resident tag this year? I will truly appreciate any info you can give. Thanks for your podcast as it gets me through my work days when I wish I were out hunting. Also, thanks for the promo codes for your affiliate sponsors. Those save us a lot of money uh, say, that we can put to hard-earned tags on things we enjoy. Please keep up the good work. And if you're ever in the Central Valley of California and want to go get a hog, feel free to holler. Um, that's Dave W. Dave, thanks for the question. Uh, to the hogs, uh, that sounds like fun. I've got family that live in California too, and I've turkey hunted over there quite a bit and see those hogs and never really hunted them, but I, 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 it would be fun someday to do that. Um, coos deer in southern Arizona, uh, what a treat for you to get to go down and spend time. Uh, for those of you that uh, don't know, January is the time that those coos deer and even the mule deer for that matter, you can buy an over-the-counter archery tag and you can actually hunt uh, both coos deer uh, and mule deer, either one, any antler deer, and they're, they're rutting. The coos deer kind of predominantly at the beginning of January, but all through the month, and then the coos deer really kick in. Uh, say around the 5th to the end of the month and so it's a great time you got the whole month and uh, some of the most beautiful country and um, 36C uh, I've spent a lot of time in 36C and I love it it's 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 got a lot of that uh, Ocotillo and yellow grass and it's kind of a more deserty unit um, a little more de A and B have a little bit more uh, oaks. Um, 36C is mostly mesquite and ocotillo. There are a few places um, that, that do have oaks, but it's just a beautiful unit. Uh, it's a great time of year to be down there because the deer are running and the weather 
you know, you got lows, you know, anywhere from, say, 25 to 35 in the mornings, but it usually warms up pretty nice into the 60s, maybe even 70s, depending on what's going on. Um, do I have any tips for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, deer, coos deer that are rutting um, can be patterned if you can get up on a high knob and glass with binoculars on a tripod and try and spend a couple days figuring the deer out, figuring which hillsides that they like, and figuring where you can make a play on these deer. I'm not going to say that a buck is particularly going to stay with those does um, for a couple days, but certainly if you can kind of find where the pockets of deer are and then kind of focus on where you need to be, maybe saddles or places where the deer are constantly crossing back and forth, uh, as well as if you have a buddy and you have a spotter, whether you're going to use radios and he can direct you and tell you what the deer are doing um, or hand signals. Um, and if you're by yourself, you know, that's where I think you need to glass for a few days, figure it out, and then go over and try and put yourself with the wind, you know, in your favor and be at the right place at the right time. Uh, spot and stock coos deer hunting during the rut can be very exciting because you can actually get pretty close to those deer. Um, I, I used this elk season. Um, I've got no affiliation with this company, um, but I really like it's called Sneak Tech. And these um, Sneak Tech, uh, they're, uh, they're like a bear's feet or like the old Carlton uh, Safari Stalkers. But they've got like one inch um, non-memory foam and then they have uh, a, like a Berber like layer. You just go to, sne I think it's sneaktech.com um, and you'll see what I'm talking about. I think they're like 40 bucks, 35 or 40 bucks. Um, and they actually come with two, uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but a, a, a Berber cover that muffles your sound. And if for whatever reason you wore out the Berber cover underneath, it's kind of a leather. And um, I used them all elk season and they're the best sneaky feet that I've ever been able to use. I would not go down uh, over-the-counter archery coos deer hunting in southern Arizona or anywhere for that matter without them. Uh, I felt like I was able to sneak up much closer to things and you can't even hear your own self walking and in that desert terrain in 36C uh, if you're wearing boots those deer can hear you crunch 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 and they know the difference between a human walking and they know the difference between a deer walking so that would be my first suggestion. Uh, second suggestion, like I said, would be um, sitting up on high points and trying to figure those deer out. Um, and then I would potentially try some calling. I would try some rattling. Um, I would try getting maybe an estrus can um, and tilting it over and it kind of goes, Wah. it's kind of got a I, Primos. Um, I think there's several companies that make them. Um, I would try some aggressive rattling, but I would make sure that you're downwind of the deer because just like any animal, they're going to try and get the wind in their favor before they come to you. Um, but I've had several friends that have had success uh, rattling deer in. So maybe like, a, and even buck grunting, um, but rattling and grunting, uh, I think would be um, something that you could try. And um, 
yeah, it's tough when they're rutting because they're moving around like crazy, but I would use the fact that they are moving around to your advantage. So I would rather be spotting stock on a deer that's that they're they're moving and rutting and there's a little chaos within the group rather than trying to sneak up on them, say in October when they're dead still quiet and they're bedded um, and, you know, they're, they're listening at every every turn of every every little noise, every every you know, every time you take a step, they're listening and and um, very hard to sneak up on. Um, I would be very patient and I would try and spot the deer and then just keep inching my way closer. Um, I would probably try and be above the deer um, and then just keep sliding towards them. Keep the wind in your favor. Try some rattling um, and then just keep doing that day after day after day. And I'm almost positive you'll get a shot of, at a buck. So hopefully that helps, David. Thanks for supporting my podcast. Uh, this question comes in from Jeff. Hey, Jay, I'm a big fan of your podcast and listen to it religiously. If I could ask you some quick questions that aren't hunting or fishing related, that would be great. Um, as I've listened to you share your experiences, can I ask what was your major in college? Um, Jeff, my major in college was actually justice studies. Um, my first semester in college, I went to Abilene Christian University I played golf in high school and um, went out and tried to walk on at Abilene Christian University. It's in Abilene, Texas. Um, and I went out there and was able to play in, in a tournament or two um, and was kind of just not making the, the uh, traveling squad. And by about the mid-November when the wind started blowing and, and I went out, I had a 1965 Mustang at the time. That's what I drove out to college and it was cold. And I went out to, one morning, I went out to my uh, Mustang and I went to open the door and it was frozen solid. They had what they called, I'd never experienced it here in Arizona, but sleet. So it was actually raining, but it turned to sleet, and there was literally a half an inch of sleet all over my vehicle, and I could not get the door of my Mustang um, open. And that afternoon, I called back home, and I said, um, Dad, what are you doing? He said, oh, I played 36 holes today. I said, I'm coming home. He said, what do you, what do you mean? I said, it's too cold here. I'm coming home. So um, I always laugh at that story. Um, I came home. I went to Grand Canyon University. I went there for three years. I was fortunate. I played on and off uh, the golf team. I was able to, uh, I usually, if, if, if anything, maybe I made the fifth man on a traveling team. Um, I was just an average college golfer, maybe just a little bit better than average uh, Division II um, player. Uh, only made a couple, say two or three uh, tournaments a year. Um, I worked at uh, Desert Mountain uh, Golf Club uh, here in Scottsdale and uh, then I had 18 hours to finish up and I ended up transferring to ASU and uh, I believe it was called uh, Criminal Justice at Grand Canyon University and then when I transferred to ASU and finished up my 18 hours there I think it, it, it their program there was called Justice Studies so I finished and, and um, it actually took me five years and I graduated, I believe, in the December of 1996. And 
let's see, December of 1996, I graduated from ASU with a degree in justice studies. Um, his next question, how did you get into the real estate investing business? Um, how would you recommend a beginner go about getting into that type of business? So when I graduated from ASU, I knew that I did not want, I had originally thought maybe I wanted to be FBI or be an attorney. And by then I was just plumb sick, full of school. Um, I was a really good student in high school and I was just a mediocre average student in college because I had severely lost interest and um, wish I would have started real estate. I wish I would have started real estate in high school, to be honest with you. But um, my dad was always in real estate and he did residential sales, uh, uh, residential resale. So he sold homes and um, I, I was talking to him about it but I also had several friends on my high school golf team their dads were uh, real estate developers and I took them to lunch and picked their brain and I'm always an advocate of um, talking to people that are uh, have already done it and trying to pick the brain of those that you know I don't want to pick the brain well I'll pick anybody's brain but I don't want to pick the brain of someone that that you know hasn't done it I want to talk to the guys that have firsthand experience and you know, they, they recommended commercial real estate and development. And so I decided to go into, to get my real estate license, which I did. Um, and I got my real estate license and I started selling uh, residential uh, vacant land kind of in Northeast uh, Phoenix. And I focused on residential vacant land and from 97 uh, until present, until now, uh, I my bread and butter has been buying and selling uh, big parcels of land and bringing in the utilities and uh, selling them to mom and pop builders, selling them to land investors, and selling them to builders. Um, so that kind of let's see, how would you recommend a beginner to go into the business? Uh, real estate, in my mind, is like anything else. It's um, how much you put in and how how bad you want it. Um, I, I I started. Uh, I put myself through college, and I drove a thousand dollar. Well, I I bought my first 1965 Mustang before I was 16. With working at the golf course, I worked at Scottsdale Country Club on Scottsdale and Shea and I worked there before when I was 14 and 15 and I saved up $5,500 to buy a 1965 Mustang and I drove that through most of my college years uh, and then I bought from the um, I noticed I had a friend that was saying the California Department of Transportation was selling some uh, Ford Rangers over in California in the San Francisco area and I bought one sight unseen it had a hundred and I don't know, 125 or 30,000 miles on it. It was a stick shift. It was a bench seat. I paid $1,000 for it. I bought a plane ticket to San Francisco, flew over there and drove it back home. It was, a I believe, a four-cylinder uh, bench seat Ranger truck. And I paid $1,000 for it. And I don't know what that has to do with... Oh, my point is I started uh, with nothing. Uh, I had no money. I put myself through school working, had no money. Uh, I always worked at the golf course. 
um, you know, actually in high school, I kind of had, compared to a lot of other kids, I had money because I always worked. I worked in the summer. I worked all throughout the school year. My senior year, I got out of school at 1130. I worked most days uh, from one o'clock till dark at the golf course, and I worked on the weekend. So for, for a high school kid, I actually had money in my pocket, and I bought my own vehicle, and I pride myself on putting myself through school and and all of that, I took kind of that same uh, chip on my shoulder mentality into my real estate business. And I just decided that I was going to try and learn everything about the business. Uh, and I wanted to know more about my area that I was working in than anybody else. And so I worked really hard to know everything. I, listings that weren't mine, I would go walk them uh, Properties that would close, I had nothing to do with. I would go walk them. I would go talk to the well drillers. I would go talk to the utility guys, um, the guys digging trenches. I, I wanted to know more about that area than anyone. And over time, uh, that led to me finally getting a listing and getting the property sold. And, and then time kept going on. And I started seeing properties, seeing guys buy properties that were undervalued. And I was able to watch what they were doing and it figured out I didn't have any money, but uh, I knew the properties, what I thought better than them. And so I took my a swing at one of my first deals. I didn't have any money. I actually had to borrow the money to close the deal and um, made, I think, $14,000 on my first uh, deal where I was a principal plus a commission. And I was off and running, and I thought I was rich at that point. Um, I was just a punk kid, didn't know anything. Um, well, I knew actually had learned a lot, but I had no experience. So um, I just kept at it. And I think real estate is one of those things that if you just really want it and you have any type of a decent market, you can make a lot of money. Um, he says, I only ask this because it seems to me that if someone were to do what you do in real estate, then they would be able to hunt and fish and guide as much as you do. In other words, live the dream. I'd really appreciate some feedback on that. I would say yes. Um, a lot of people can look at the amount of time that I get to spend do hunting and fishing. Um, but I would say if they knew me from 97 um, to 2008, while I did still did a lot of hunting and fishing, I worked nonstop. Uh, I worked, I worked morning and night. I worked sun up to sun down. I worked hard and I played hard. I still hunted. I still fished, but I, I worked that hard because I wanted to be successful and I wanted to be able to afford to do some of the things that I get to enjoy now. Um, and I literally started with no money zero I had you know shining golf clubs cleaning golf clubs money and that's that's how I started um, so I always tell people that you know real estate or or any type of business that you can make your own that you're passionate about that you can put in your time I recommend though try and if you're gonna do something you might as well pick some sort of industry or some sort of job that if you really do well that there's an upside I, you know, I, I always encourage people to follow their passion, but why not follow a passion that has the opportunity that if you can have a few good years that you can really get ahead. 
Um, so any type of sales or any type of owning your own business, um, I'm a firm believer in you know having skin in the game. My grandpa used to always tell me that I wouldn't learn anything until it was my own money, and I couldn't agree more that you have to have your own skin in the game. And it, you know, I took it upon myself that it was not going to fail, and I wasn't going to take no for an answer. And sure, I had bumps in the road, and and I had hurdles, um, but that that made it that made the passion burn even deeper. Um, and I would highly recommend to those out there that are young, find something that you want to do, but find something that if you do well and you do your job, that there's a potential that you're going to make some good licks and, and, you know, can come out on top and make some good money. I, I always hate to see young guys that have so much talent, young guys and gals pick something that they're passionate about, but there's really no upside. So, you know, um, I just that's that's some advice I can give. Pick something that if it goes well, that there's a chance you you can come out on top. Hope that answers your question, um, Jeff. I really appreciate your support of my podcast. PhoneScope is a company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. It is simple to text photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. Get yours now by using the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. Real game calls featuring the elk reel. Real Game Calls makes innovative, realistic, and easy-to-master calls using their proprietary, revolutionary design. They are located and manufactured in Gypsum, Colorado. Their calls were designed and battle-tested on some of the hardest-hunted terrain on Earth. Check out ElkReel.com. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a 20% discount on all purchases. Go to www.ElkReel.com. Uh, here's a question. What is your favorite Kuyu pant for hunting? Oh, wait a minute. What is your favorite Kuyu pant for hunting elk and coos deer, Kevin P? Okay, so my favorite, I'm a firm believer in Kuyu. I love it, it um, from the top down. I love Jason Harrison, the founder. I've been able to hunt with him a couple times and um, just really enjoy being around him. Uh, but he makes an incredible product. And speaking of someone that's passionate, he's passionate. He started his own business. He started a business that if he did well and pushed his passion, it would have some upside. He's done very, very well for himself. Uh, but he, he burns with passion to make uh, high-quality products. My favorite pant, my favorite Kuyu pant for elk and coos deer. So I'm going to say that the Tiburon uh, for Arizona elk hunting, I wore them in Utah as well, but for Arizona elk hunting and any warm weather hunts, and I would say like archery, deer hunting, uh, spring turkey hunting, uh, archery elk hunting, my favorite pant is going to be the Tiburon uh, pant. 
And the thing that I like about the Tiburon is they have that air dot technology where air flows in and out of the fabric. And if you actually hold it up to the, to the light, you can see there's these little pinholes. When you're looking at the pant, when I have them on or somebody has them on, you can't tell. But when you hold it up to the light, you can see those little air dots. And they let air flow in and out. The other thing I like about most of the Kuyu pants is down from, say, like your hip bone down to above your knee on the outer part, like so out by your thigh, um, they have the zippers and you can zip that down and it has mesh there. So you, they breathe really, really well. So that's my favorite like elk or um, warm weather uh, Kuyu pant. Now coos deer hunting, um, I wore those Tiburon pants on this backpacking coos deer hunt. The one thing I will tell you is you have to watch wearing the Tiburon uh, on some of this coos deer country where there's a lot of cat claw and, and a lot of that wait a minute bush is what darn I call it uh, where it just grabs and you know it 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 I would say it's not extremely durable but it, it's it's the Tiburon is my favorite if you're talking most coos deer hunting not archery hunting in August but most October November um, December hunts I'm gonna say uh, go with the attack pant, which is kind of between the guide pant and the Tiburon. It's got the four-way stretch. It doesn't have the air, air dot technology, but it's a little bit more durable than the Tiburon. And then if you're hunting in real cat claw country, I recommend the guide pant. Now, the guide pant has a fleece lining. It also has the zippers down the side, so you can vent. Uh, but my the guide pan is my favorite to wear in Mexico or on the December coos deer hunts where it can be cold in the morning. Uh, the guide pant is the most durable pant of all the Kuyu pants, but it's also going to be the warmest. Um, so I hope that help, uh, answers your question, Kevin. Uh, I love Kuyu. I have all of their stuff and that's all I wear. Uh, let's see, Dan T. says, tell me about your coos deer and Gould's turkey hunts in Mexico. Can I hunt them both at the same time? Um, Dan, no, you can't hunt coos deer and Gould's turkey at the same time. The coos deer hunts, uh, the season in Mexico uh, primarily runs from mid-November to I think the first week in February. Most of the hunting that we do down there is in January. Uh, we try and focus our hunts around the rut. Uh, we, darn, I, I've been going down since 1999, I believe, and uh, I've never missed a year. And it's absolutely one of my favorite hunts of the year, coos deer rutting down in Mexico. It's, I love the country. I love the people. I love everything about it. You see the, the buck to doe ratio. You see a lot more bucks than you do on state land. Uh, I also love the fact that uh, these ranches you go and you lock the gate and you're the only hunters there. Uh, so you don't have to deal with some of the, the combat hunting or combat bow hunting or just combat rifle hunting that you do on public land. Um, and I think sometimes that's refreshing just to go down and be able to hunt the deer on their own turf and, and uh, see a lot of bucks. And it's, it's just a real enjoyable time. Uh, you can send me an email if you have interest uh, to, to know more about the hunts in, as far as price. 
at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Typically, our guided hunts, we do typically two, uh, two uh, five-person so we do 10, 10 hunters total, uh, five per trip. Uh, we do those hunts. We do seven-day hunts. A lot of the outfitters do five-day hunts. We do two seven-day hunts. We have a travel day on each side, so it's nine total days. Um, uh, you know, half-day travel on the front end, seven full days, and then a half-day travel on the back end. Uh, it's just uh, it's, it's, it's a hunt that I hope I never have to give up. I love hunting coos deer in Mexico. Uh, you can go on our website, Colburn and Scott Outfitters, and, uh, dot com, and on the right-hand column, uh, there's a place there for Mexico coos deer hunts, and I believe we have photos going back four, five, six years, photos, videos of the hunt. You can get a real good feel for it. Uh, the Goulds turkey hunts, some of those hunts take place on some of those same very ranches we hunt uh, coos deer. I forgot to say the coos deer we hunt uh, primarily mountain ranches. Uh, most of the ranches we hunt are within a couple hours of the Arizona border. Uh, I have the biggest coos deer I've ever killed personally was way down south by Hermosillo on a flats ranch, uh, where typically you have a lot lower density and you hunt those. I think they're two totally different deer. I think biologic biological bio, biologically they're the same deer uh but they're just different you go get way down there in the flats and you're got you know maybe on the whole ranch you might have three knobs on the whole ranch where you get up and get some elevation and those coos deer live out in those flats and they grow up to be big giant deer but you may only see 10 deer in a week whereas we primarily hunt mountain ranches where you know you're seeing you know most ranches are 10 to 20 bucks a day sometimes even more and uh, there's just something to me about glass in those yellow grass canyon country of of uh kind of northern sonora and that's what dar and i prefer to do uh the the gould's turkey uh been doing gould's turkey i think since uh been guiding down there since i think 2010 uh last season uh we killed 26 gould's turkeys i believe on seven different properties and the Gould's turkey is an amazing bird. Um, most of the time, the hunts are three-day hunts. Most of the hunts, I take two guys at a time. We're the only people there. I have customized trips where, you know, groups of four and five, all guys that know each other. We've been able to do some great trips over the years. Um, my shotgun hunters are usually always 100% success. I have had a few bow hunters like get their first bird but not get their second bird. Uh, most of the hunters that come down choose to hunt two turkeys. Uh, the gobbling is awesome. The strutting and I use Dave Smith decoys. Uh, they come in and just beat up my full strutters and my jakes and um, they're a real interactive bird just because they don't get any hunting pressure at all. So we roost them at night. Uh, we make a play for them in the morning a roost set up then we run and gun them and then we go back and have a siesta and get some lunch and then we start it all over in the afternoon running and gunning and then roosting that night and we just carry that over it's uh, one of my favorite hunts of the year i have an, my own separate website gould's turkey hunt that's g-o-u-l-d-s turkey hunt gould's turkey hunt.com uh, you can go on there and watch 
every year you can go watch all since 2000 i think the last six i guess it'd be the last six years video and photos of those hunts it's uh, a hunt like the coos that i hope i never have to give up Um, absolutely love it i usually do my hunts down there the first two weeks of may Um, considering doing some hunts this year the last two weeks of april um, got some great leads on some properties in chihuahua um and uh, do my do some hunts in Sonora in May and possibly do some uh, goulds in Chihuahua. Uh, the difference is uh, Chihuahua has much higher density of goulds. Um, so some of these ranches, you know, where you could shoot 20 birds on one property, as opposed to my Sonora ranches, you know, most of them you could only shoot like eight birds per year to keep the population up and the you know super high quality hunting. Uh, so I hope that answers your question, Dan. If you have any questions, you can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also go on my Instagram page at jscottoutdoors and you can see tons of coups, photos, and videos from our success down there and tons of uh, uh, Gould's Turkey uh, videos and photos as well. Last question. Um, there's a lot more questions, but the last question for this episode uh, what boots are you running this season, Pete? So Pete, uh, I, I, I ran some, I'm running some, a solo, um, uh, drifters. Uh, it's a lightweight synthetic boot. I want to say that, uh, a solo is from Romania and I really like them cause they're lightweight and I want to say they're just kind of a, um, just over the ankle boot. Um, but they're real lightweight. They're real durable. They have a stiff sole. I kind of fought plantar fasciitis um, for a while, and it seems the stiffer sole boots work better for me. Uh, I wore those a lot on my elk hunt. Uh, I've also, for the last three or four years, actually probably five years, I've worn the Schnee's Granite. They're a 10-inch boot. Um, they're like a bomb-proof boot, full leather um, it's got the rubber rand, um, I believe they have the Vibram sole, and I really have liked those Schnee's granite, uh, but I, I also just got a pair of uh, crispy uh, guide boots, and the crispy, crispy guide boot actually looks just like the Schnee's granite, um, and I have been breaking them in, and they feel really good to my feet. They actually feel a little bit more comfortable than the, the Schnee's so far. Uh, and I haven't worn them. Uh, the, the sheep hunts coming up will be my first uh, time that I've actually worn them in the field. Uh, I have been wearing them this summer and I have been wearing them on my daily hikes, uh, trying to get them broke in. And I was going to wear them last weekend on the backpack hunt with uh, uh, Paul and Dar Colburn. Uh, but I was afraid being in there three days and the temps being 95 degrees. I was afraid that if, if you know, we were doing some pretty gnarly country that I, I didn't want to give my feet any problem. So I figured I'd wear them another couple weeks here on my trail, trail runs um, and hikes um, in the mountains here by Phoenix and get them just perfect. But, but uh, very quick to break in. Uh, very very comfortable and I think I'm really gonna like these um, crispy uh, guide boots much like I've I think I'm on my second pair of the Schnee's granite uh, and they look very very similar I will say 
the Schnee's granite took me a little longer to break in than these crispies. The crispy immediately felt really good on my feet. And I think it's important that, you know, you I may like something, but you, you need to try them on yourself and everybody's foot's different. Um, and then the other thing is make sure you have some Luco tape. Uh, Luco tape is, uh, you can get it at amazon.com and it, it's good to put on your heels or anywhere if you get any hot spots. Uh, that Luco tape will actually stay on. Uh, you can shower with it on and it will stay on and, and uh, cover up those hot spots. So guys, I want to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I want to thank you for all the support and all the questions um, and uh, all the loyalty that you guys show me. I want to thank my sponsors, GoHunt.com, uh, Insider. They've been with me from the beginning. Uh, I want to thank Phonescope.com. Uh, I want to thank the Outdoorsmans and Real Game Calls. Uh, without these guys, uh, you know, I'm able to put a lot of time into this podcast. Uh, but because of the sponsor support and because of all the great feedback I've gotten from the sponsors that you guys have also supported the sponsors, they make this podcast possible. So it's kind of a joint deal, you know, great support from you guys and great support from the sponsors, um, make this where I can spend as much time as I do. And I love doing it. And the feedback that I get from you is, is overwhelming. And I want to leave you guys with um, some feedback. Uh, if you follow me on Instagram, uh, it, it might be just a touch redundant. Uh, but I, I've got, I don't know, 18 or 20 testimonials uh, from the hunting seasons where uh, guys had uh, hashtagged uh, me or well, actually, they sent me these direct messages by email or, or by Instagram. So I want, I want to read a few of them to you. And I want to thank everybody for their support. And throughout this fall season, if you want to hashtag J. Scott Outdoors or uh, at J. Scott Outdoors or J, uh, hashtag J. Scott Outdoors podcast, that'd be great. If you have any testimonials where something that helped helped you um, in the podcast on, on these coos deer or sheep or mule deer or, or um, elk hunts, um, feel free to send it. I'll post it on my Instagram. It says, uh, J. Scott Outdoors podcast listener, uh, Roberts JD writes, Hey, Jay, I just wanted to thank you for all you're doing on the podcast and thank you for your awesome guest. This was my first uh, ever bull elk. I drew a tag here in Washington and due to your podcast, I was successful and was on the elk every day. I had five shot opportunities, and in Washington, that's not really common, uh, and especially for a beginner. Thanks again, Jay. Um, way to go, uh, JD. Congrats on your first archery elk. Here's another one. Dustin Hollowell writes, Jay, first, I love your podcast. It gets me through work, long drives, long runs, workouts, etc. Thanks for doing it. I chatted with you a bit back in April about bow hunting elk and said it was uh, I would follow up with the outcome. Well, it was, uh, let's see. Well, it was a great trip and the hunting was much better than the rifle hunt. The bulls were very vocal minus the windy days. We had a couple of encounters with 300 inch plus bulls, which was way more than we expected. We harvested two branch bulls while we were there and had a blast. We were able to shoot one at 21 yards, uh, that I'm not sure I would have passed in any unit anywhere. Anyway, just wanted to uh, follow up. Thanks again for the podcast. Uh, 
Dustin, congratulations. Thanks for sending me uh, this uh, testimonial. And uh, guys, there's many more here on my Instagram. Uh, thank you guys uh, for all of your support. And um, God bless you all.